She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Uh, they dropped in words like lodestar to indicate that it might be Mike Pence and words like first principles, very common to the speeches that General Mattis gives them. And then they dropped in that off the rails comment that comes from the Woodward book that's attributed to General Kelly. Language of the op-ed I think is useless to look at because it's a ghostwriter. It did not start with Donald Trump. He is a symptom, not the cause. He's just capitalizing on resentments that politicians have been fanning for years. It's really a trifecta. I mean, it, you start out with a Bob Woodward book, then you go to Anonymous, another attack on the president and his fitness for office, and now uh, you have a third attack in the form of Barack Obama. All of this is very unusual. And now, Stacey Washington. It's me, Stacey Washington, here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Go to AFR.net and UrbanFamilyTalk.com to visit the websites. So guess what? Yeah, we've got a whole lot going on. And mainly it's just the complete unmasking of America's left and the media and their attempt to now paint the president as someone who's mentally unstable and unable to stay in office through the 25th Amendment because they were unable to prove that he, you know, is a Russian spy. I, I, I'm sure you're cackling now and I don't want to make you, you know, laugh through your Diet Coke or your 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 afternoon coffee or your hot tea or what have you. If you're drinking some Southern sweet tea, I'm sorry. I don't mean to make you spit all that out, but that's exactly what's going here. You, you have a media apparatus that has tried unsuccessfully to convince Americans that for the first time in the history of this country, we've elected an undercover operative for a foreign adversary. Never mind the fact that we are sometimes we act in cohort with with Russia and that we trade with them and that we actually do have accords and agreements with them and they're not our actual enemy. They're just our geopolitical foe. Never mind all that. Those details are too much for these people. We're talking about people who literally just if they can't believe he's a spy, then he absolutely just must be. He must be incompetent. He must be tired. He must be someone who can't get through the day. He might even want to kill himself. If you've heard this, if you've seen the things that are out there, the different um, there's there's a lot of interesting commentary coming from individuals who are on the shows. And what they do is they make these connections between Nixon, President Nixon, and the insinuations they made about his health and his sanity and the connections between the insinuations they made about Ronald Reagan. Remember, Ronald Reagan was too old to be president. He was he was infirm. He 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 must have had Alzheimer's, all these different things they said about him. Well, now they're going to try that old pony out on Donald Trump. Never mind the fact that he, he appears to have more stamina than most 60-year-olds as it pertains to just constantly flitting around the country and holding rallies where he just speaks off the cuff for over an hour, sometimes two hours at a time. He seems to have a lot of energy. He seems to be pretty healthy. He seems to be the epitome of this new phenomenon that we're all living under, which is that Americans' life expectancy is markedly higher. And so for this generation, I'm not talking about for, you know, millennials who are expected to live a shorter life expectancy. I'm talking about the ones who are elderly now. They're at they're still peak operational efficiency. And it appears that Donald Trump is in that same vein. 
We don't see anybody talking about Joe Biden not being, you know, able to keep up anything because they're hoping he's their he's their trump card, if you will, for um, the possibility that they can't, you know, they can't fly Booker and they can't fly Harris. Yes, that's exactly what what we're talking about here. So when I'm listening to the news and, and watching the news and seeing all of that and I see them make this huge pivot. That tells me they've given, given up hope on the Mueller investigation coming down with some indictments or, you know, anything that's going to be actionable for them to impeach Trump. Now, they have said through their mouthpiece, Maxine Waters, that impeaching Donald Trump is what they plan to do if they're able to take Congress in the midterm. But that doesn't mean they get rid of him. An impeached president doesn't necessarily mean no longer president. Look at Bill Clinton. They, they made the playbook for that. Now they have to live with it. So, and same for the Republicans and this whole independent council thing, you know. So it, when, we, when we look at what's happening, uh, you, hey, it's Monday. We're sliding on into Monday. It's new week, you know, new, new day, but same old dance, same old story. So today on the show, we're going to have Todd Ruger, legal affairs reporter for Roll Call. He's going to join us to talk about Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court hearing updates, mainly you know, from here on out, what what's going to happen next? And then we also have uh, Colonel Alan West. He'll be joining us in hour two to talk a little bit about his new book that's coming out. And I'm excited about this interview. I've interviewed him once before, and this is going to be exciting because I really I'm excited to to see what he's writing about and see what he has on his mind going into the midterms. And also just a chance to kind of reconnect with him. The last time I saw him in person, I got to do a, a quick live stream with him where he was just holding court at a uh, private dinner at, at the NRA convention. But that wasn't this year. That was last year. And so it was really fun to talk to him then. And it's going to be really exciting to speak to him again today. So we're also going to unpack a few news items that the media isn't covering. And it's odd because... This PLO office thing is kind of a big deal. So let's let's get into that. First of all, President Trump, as campaign Trump, was very clear that he would not be putting up with, uh, you know, kind of a, a divided loyalty as it pertained to our ally Israel and the opposition to them, which is the Palestinians who want their own. You know, they want basically they want to take over part of Israel. And so it's interesting that he's decided Uh, that they're going to make an announcement. National Security Advisor John Bolton, this is today. Um, They're going to announce that they're closing the Palestinian, Palestine Liberation Organization office in Washington. And this is a part of their campaign for pressure to get rid of the the impasse there's the the talks have stalled. The Palestinians are demanding things that the that Israel is just not going to agree to. And so in response to that, they're they're putting on the pressure. Now, uh, the draft of the speech by John Bolton was provided to The Wall Street Journal. And one of the quotes from it is the Trump administration will not keep the office open when the Palestinians refuse to start direct and meaningful negotiations with Israel. Now, Mr. Bolton also it's possible that he will threaten to impose sanctions against the International Criminal Court if the ICC moves ahead with investigations of the United States and Israel. The, if the court comes after us, Israel and other allies, we will not sit quietly. And this is according to the prepared remarks. They're also, the Trump administration, possibly going to ban ICC judges and prosecutors from even entering the United States, which is a pretty stiff penalty. So 
The funds that they have in the U.S. financial system could be sanctioned and they could prosecute the ICC judges in the U.S. criminal system. And that could also be what happens with any company or state that assists in an ICC investigation of Americans. So I love the strength of that. I love the fact that that's something that basically throws the gauntlet down and says it's, it's not a red line. It's just a statement of fact. If you come after us, you won't be able to enter the country and we'll prosecute you to the fullest extent of American law. So that gives them a little bit of a, a parameter with which they can operate in to let them know, hey, nobody over here is playing around with you. We want the Palestinians to figure out something that's reasonable that can be done. I think they should be absorbed into the other countries that they're already in and leave Israel alone. But we're going to see that come to a head. Um, so now I want to talk about our good friend, former President Barack Obama, who oddly has reappeared. He's uh, he's back. And he's not back just to receive ethics awards and make us all giggle. He's actually back so that he can take it to President Trump because he thinks he did something worthy of creating the economy we're in. And so I just before we listen to this audio clip of Chris, it's Chris Christie kind of saying that there's a whole lot of irony here. I want you to think about this. So President Trump has has really changed the dynamic as far as the economy is concerned. He's been very successful there. He's been very successful in unleashing our military to destroy ISIS. And so those are two accomplishments that were not something that President Obama could claim. And you have, while he's trying to take credit for that, while Obama tries to take credit for those two things, the economy and, and ISIS, you also have him saying that the, the country is in an existential crisis and that things are, have never been this bad before. You see that? I, I don't see a lot of people pointing out that he's basically speaking out of both sides of his mouth. It's exhausting, but if you listen to him, you really you get the idea that he either he's double-minded or he doesn't think you're really listening to him or you're extremely gullible, one of those three. So here's Chris Christie kind of talking about Obama's comments in light of the fact that President Obama was in charge for eight years and he could have done anything he wanted and he didn't. It's number five. This is a president who will be out there and he's going to be campaigning. That's because it's what he likes to do. He enjoys it. First and foremost, it's because he enjoys it. Um, secondly, he thinks in certain places he can be helpful. And I think they will look at where he can be helpful and look at polling numbers. More likely Senate, Senate races, races than House Much races. more likely Senate races than House races. But let me say one other thing about President Obama's speech. Um, I find it richly ironic that he talks about the fact that Trump is a symptom, not the cause. Uh, okay, so what was happening, he was the president for the eight years when the cause was being created that he's now become a symptom of. He, but the president acts like he's detached from this, that somehow he was, he was a dispassionate observer during the eight years beforehand. If Donald Trump is truly, if he's right, and Donald Trump is the symptom of a cause well, Donald Trump got elected in 2016 after eight years of Barack Obama's president. He can't detach himself from that. Yeah. So the symptom is actually not Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump would be the remedy, according to the voters. And the symptom was the economy, uh, our foreign policy, all the different things that were going wrong in the country that Americans wanted to change the direction of jobs fleeing overseas still, um, you know, our, our oil production not being what it could be because of the actions by the Obama administration. Just, 
you name it, we were doing things that Americans weren't interested in seeing us do. And if it wasn't that, if if Americans wanted a continuation of the policies of the Obama administration, they only needed to elect Hillary. And then they could have had the historicity of saying, we just elected a woman after we elected a black man. We are that country. We've done this. We've done that. And also that we could have seen Americans repudiate very soundly the Republican Party, the Republican Party platform. That didn't happen. That's not what happened. So as often as Barack Obama might want to come back and, hey, haters. (laughs) So um, I love it when someone who says they're a Christian, after after I say things about Barack Obama that aren't complimentary, then I get hate mail. And the hate mail is always from someone who says they're a Christian and they can't believe how unchristian my comments are towards Barack Obama. And then they proceed to unleash a lot of profanity. Now, I considered, you know, just reading the parts of the email that were um, not profane on the air. But there was so little, like so few words in there that weren't curse words from this so-called Christian that I figured it was a waste of time. But I do want to just address it, just in case you're planning on sending me me some hate mail. I've been known to publish it on my blog, especially if you send it from through, through my blog, if you go to the contact page and send me some hate mail. And if you threaten me, I send it to a private investigator and I share it with the police. So... That's what happens when you send me some hate mail. Oh, also, we sometimes I let my husband see it and we laugh. And that's about it. That, that's, that's about as far as it goes. So the idea that something is going on that maybe my family members don't know about or that hate mail helps it or that I might read your hate mail and then suddenly decide, you know what? I've been wrong. I do agree with Barack Obama. It's not going to happen. So, um, you know, you're free to do whatever you want. And I'm, I'm free to do whatever I feel like I need to do with your email, because once you email me, it becomes my property. So, you know, just, just a few notes since I'm, you know, haven't, haven't been here that long and, 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 you know, telling the truth about Barack Obama seems to send people into a rage, not everyone, but just a few select individuals. I was amused this weekend when I read all of the the things coming through. I thought, Oh my goodness, people are upset. It's kind of sad. We're going to talk about Trump crowing over the soaring GDP numbers, and then we're going to have some updates on Hurricane Florence in the third segment. Up next, we have Todd Ruger, legal affairs reporter for Roll Call. Stay there. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, the very first day in Israel, when we're staying in Jerusalem, we go to the Mount of Olives. And it's there at the Mount of Olives we look out over the old city of Jerusalem. It's a spectacular sight. You've seen it in pictures before, but it's another thing to actually be there as we walk down from the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane and we pray there. It's going to be a wonderful time with brothers and sisters from around the country visiting the Holy Land, the land of Jesus. If you want information on this March 14th through the 22nd tour, just call us and we'll send you a brochure. Call 1-800-FAMILIES, F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S, option 5, and leave us your name and your address and we'll mail you a brochure. 
Or if you want to simply go online at twholyland.com, everything's there. twholyland.com. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with the Legacy Moment. It's a good exercise in humility to keep a fresh sense of what we used to be. I have a friend who is a very effective evangelist. He takes advantage of every opportunity he can to introduce people to the Savior. Tom has never forgotten what he used to be and what God through Christ did to deliver him. It's always there in a wonderful way behind every message he gives. He remembers his deliverance from the streets of New York City. He remembers what God has done for him through Christ. The miracle of his salvation is always in the background. Memory keeps us in touch with the miracle of our salvation and a sense of our own neediness. Listen to this passage in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration to all men. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What a word! Remember, He says, You aren't always a believer. Remember that. Here's what I want you to remember today. Remember what God has done for you. Join Crawford Loritz tomorrow for another Legacy Moment. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. program, everybody. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest. We have Todd Ruger, legal affairs reporter for Roll Call. Todd, thanks for joining us today. Happy Monday to you. Hi, Stacey. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk. So I'm interested in what the next steps are for the Kavanaugh confirmation process. Last week was a circus. It was ridiculous. It was crazy. We made it through. We survived. Cory Booker's still in the Senate. What's next? Um, Yeah, well, like you say, it was crazy. That was sort of the pinnacle and the action part of the Senate process, confirmation process. Uh, Senate, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Charles E. Grassley of Iowa has said that they're going to set a hearing uh, for September 13th. They won't actually have a vote, but they will have a committee vote on September 20th. He's most likely going to be approved along uh, party lines there, 11 to 10 vote. And then it would be the the confirmation process will be moved to the Senate floor, where Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has already said that he wants to have a, a final confirmation vote before October 1st. So the Senate looks to be on track uh, to have that vote uh, before the end of the month. So what could happen to perhaps derail this process? Well, it's, uh, I mean, th- th- we're kind of in an anything-can-happen moment now. Um, if you go back to the the confirmation hearings for uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, 
the some of the allegations about uh, that Anita Hill brought forward and all of that that came during this current process that we're at. The they were about to schedule a floor vote. They waited over a weekend to have the floor vote on the following week, and it was over that weekend that the Anita Hill allegations came out. So you just never know what might be in anybody's pocket. Um, Senator Kamala Harris of California, a member of the Judiciary Committee, asked some questions at the hearing that kind of made you think she had some information about uh, Judge Kavanaugh maybe having an inappropriate conversation about the the, pro, the special counsel probe being run by Robert Mueller, which is looking into Trump's, um, you know, campaign and any connections to the Russian uh, operatives. And so, you know, maybe she's got something in her back pocket that she's going to release. Um, but barring that, it really does look like there are a lot of Republicans who, enough Republicans, are ready to back this uh, to get him through. All he needs is a majority vote. And the Senate uh, is controlled by Republicans 51 to 49 at this point. Yeah, and that's due in no small part to the quick action by Governor Ducey in placing uh, Senator Kyle in in basically pulling him out of retirement to serve. Uh, I don't know if it's until December. I've heard that it's until December or it's possibly the entire remainder of Senator John McCain's term. Um, what what do you see as far as the Democrats, though? I've, I've asked some others who come on the show, and everyone seems to think that two or three Democrats might possibly cross over and vote for Justice Kavanaugh. Right. Well, and with the, with the John Kyle appointment, it's kind of interesting. He was the retired senator who was helping to sell uh, Judge Kavanaugh on the Hill. You know, he's going around with him to all the private one-on-one meetings. And uh, and so he's definitely going to vote for Kavanaugh. You can pretty much guarantee that. Um, and on the Democratic side, there are three, four, five uh, Democrats who are up for re-election in states won by Trump. Uh, and so there is a lot of political pressure to vote for Trump's Supreme Court nominee. Uh, they the, the the basic mathematics and politics right now in the Senate is at fifty-one forty-nine. Um, the Democrats need help from some Republicans. So uh, Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska are the ones that uh, many people on the left think they'll be, they might be able to pick off if they raise enough concerns about access to abortion or health care pre-existing conditions in the 2010 health care law. Um, if they don't, if they're not able to pick off any Republicans, then there would definitely be some Democrats who would, for political reasons, support Kavanaugh. It would it might help their reelection. It might help Democrats stay, you know, close or maybe gain control of the Senate. Uh, the, the most likely ones would be Joe Donnelly in, in Indiana, or um, Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, or Joe Manchin in West Virginia. But there's also Doug Jones in Alabama, who you know just barely won his special election, and that's a very heavily uh, pro Roe v. Wade, or I guess anti Roe v. Wade state, and um, Roe v. Wade is one the 1973 law where that gate that guaranteed constitutional access to abortion, um, and so that might be enough to sway him to vote uh, for Kavanaugh as well. So you know the the first thing that Democrats would have to do is maybe pick off one or two votes, and then work on securing every Democrat uh, to oppose his nomination. So let's. Okay, two things. First of all, the there's there's this weird dynamic because I saw and just it was just like a blurb on Twitter that um, I think it's Susan Collins received three thousand coat hangers at her office 
from pro-abortion activists wanting to kind of, I guess, draw a line in the sand and let her know, you know, that they're watching her vote. Um, but I, I'm feeling pretty confident that she's going to support Kavanaugh, she, both she and Murkowski, because they've kind of telegraphed that so far going in. But like they've they've not they're usually if they're going to vote against, they're very clear about it from the, the outset. Uh, yeah, well, there's no doubt that they're both under a lot of pressure right now um, from both sides. And and Claire McCaskill, uh, the Democratic senator from Missouri, described this as kind of a political loser uh, in that half the people support Kavanaugh and half don't. And no matter what she does, she's going to upset half half of her constituents. And so Susan Collins might be looking at the at, at this the same way. As far as the coat hanger thing, I also saw a report about that. I, don't, I haven't verified it or whatever, but... I don't, you know, that's one of those things that I'm not sure that that's going to convince her of anything. There is a group that is pledging, like, if you, we will pledge this money to support your opponent in the next election if you vote for Kavanaugh. So I think the last time I saw that, and again, I haven't verified this or anything, but I think it was up to like $800,000 um, of campaign Whoa. money pledged to go <laughs> against her uh, in the next election. So. Um, you know, there is some political and monetary pressure up there. Um, but like you said, everything that she's said so far uh, has telegraphed that she she doesn't see a problem with his uh, view on, for instance, Roe v. Wade and, and access to abortion. And uh, she, a- after the confirmation hearing, she still hasn't said anything. And then she, uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, uh, were among the, the Democrats who... Um, Voted for, I'm sorry, we're among the Republicans who voted for uh, Ju- Justice Gorsuch, who was Trump's first pick. And so, and, and Justice Gorsuch presumably had a similar approach to Roe v. Wade and, mm-hmm. and the law about access to abortion that Judge Kavanaugh does. So, if they were comfortable voting for Justice Gorsuch, it seems logical that they would be comfortable voting for Justice, uh, Judge Kavanaugh to become Justice Kavanaugh. And that's you're speaking of of Murkowski and and Collins, correct? Yes. Okay. So, hmm. I so the eight hundred thousand. That sounds like well. I guess she would also be looking at the possibility of if she votes against um, the. So let's say Murkowski and Collins. Collins specifically votes against uh, Kavanaugh. Would not the Republican conference then possibly hold money from her in her next withhold money from her in her next election? So it's the eight hundred thousand from over there, or the I don't know how many millions from over here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're 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 putting your spot on what the political uh, quandary she's in, and you know, on top of that, I think it takes a lot uh, to be to to buck your party in the in the Senate. You know, for her to go against Republicans at this point and to sink. Uh, a Supreme Court nomination would be a big deal. I mean, it was a very big deal. And um, unless she's got a really solid reason to do that, it wouldn't. It wouldn't seem to be um, in her interest. I mean, a lot of people think that Republicans held their nose and voted for Trump uh, because of the Supreme Court that he mm-hmm. would be filling these slots on the Supreme Court instead of Hillary Clinton. Sure. And uh, and so that was important enough for them. To, to, to do that. So it's, it, the Republicans have for a long time made courts, the courts and federal judges a priority, and this is no different. So I know that um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, this is probably his most important thing he's ever done. He would consider that. He, in an interview the other day, said this is his legacy. First of all, blocking uh, yes. President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, 
Mm-hmm. And then secondly, um, being able to fill it, uh, fill this spot with uh, Judge Kavanaugh. It's it's actually Todd. And speaking, and if you're just tuning into the show, welcome in. We're speaking to Todd Ruger, legal affairs reporter for Roll Call. That's uh, RollCall.com. We I have to tell you, Todd, that for me, for Mitch McConnell, him holding the seat open and preventing Merrick Garland from taking it, and then having because I know that Mitch McConnell was a part of that team that was consulting with then candidate Trump about how to handle the judges and, and the Supreme court list specifically, and was instrumental in shepherding the, the candidate towards, you know, you need the heritage foundation and the Federalists. You need them to vet the list. You need to not have your sister on there. You know, it was, it was a, a lot of talk going on and Mitch McConnell was a part of that calming process and directional influence. And he's never been my favorite. I, I have not yeah. been a fan of Mitch McConnell and I have actually come over quite significantly. I wouldn't say I'm a fan, but I'm definitely um, like I, I don't I don't have the same harsh criticism for him after him taking those actions because I feel like those are two actions that he took that kind of they'll outlive him certainly, and they'll be beneficial for um, the kinds of things that I'd like to see the Supreme Court you know really adhere to the Constitution that kind of stuff. And I'm not alone in that feeling. I think you know for for me I was I've never been. So I'm like not a huge fan of any of the senators. There's just a couple of them that I think are really um, good at what they do. But for Mitch McConnell, his leadership, I've kind of been like, what is he doing really? And then he did that. So, you know, (laughs) I think it was when he says he's talking about his legacy, he really has an eye towards it because he's doing things that are going to continue to be talked about and they will really outlive him. You know, his retirement, he'll be long into retirement and will still be um, crowing about the Supreme Court. Um, so I, I thought you, so you just mentioned Todd, this whole insinuation that, that Kamala Harris made towards, and, and there were even Democrats who criticized her for the way that she treated him during the hearing on that question. So are, do you think there's some legitimate concern there or is she just making this up? Like Cory Booker made up his release of the documents that were, had already been released the night before. Uh, well, in terms of Senator Harris, I, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, I think it's interesting if she has something. Um, she what she said is that she had reliable information that Judge Kavanaugh had spoken with somebody at a law firm that was uh, started by Donald Trump's personal attorney, and it was that this conversation was about the probe into the, the Trump campaign and the, the Russia the the Russian operatives, and this is a big deal for Democrats because um, they want to make sure that this ju- this new justice won't. You know, reflexively rule, or has hasn't already promised to rule uh, for the president when it comes time to if there's ever any sort of civil or criminal subpoena or indictment or something that comes down the road in the legal process, um, they want this justice to be fair. And so Kamala Harris asked the question. Senator Harris asked the question, um, and, and her tone was a little prosecutorial. Uh, you know, she was a prosecutor. And so she sort of put him on the defensive. There's no doubt that he was, uh, you know, knocked off his feet just a little bit uh, when it came to this because he was saying, well, what does she, you know, she know? It made it sound like she knew something. Uh, and then the next day uh, they came back and Judge Kavanaugh was asked about it and he declined or he, he denied that he had had any inappropriate conversations. And then when Senator Harris asked him about it again, he again said, no, I haven't had any talks. And she said, well, I wish you had said that yesterday. Um, so it, it remains to be seen if she has something uh, else up her sleeve or card to be played. There's 
There's a couple other times yet to, to bring out any information if she has it. Um, but it seems, in, in, in my way, the, the iron was hot there. She could have struck or caught him in, a, uh, in some sort of mm-hmm. uh, crosshairs there. So maybe, yeah. maybe there's something to come, maybe not. I don't know. I just and I, I understand what you mean, Todd, when you say she's she was a prosecutor. But to me, it came off as, you know, you know how parents interrogate kids who are under the age of 10 and you you say, you know, did you did you um, did you take the car to park and let the car ro- roll back in the driveway? And the kid's like, I don't know. And then you're like, someone did it. You're the only one who's here besides me. You must have done it. And so you go back and forth with the kid. And her demeanor towards him was not that of a prosecutor dealing with a very intelligent, very astute legal mind. The way she talked to him, yes or no, it was like she was trying to trap him into saying that he'd spoken to someone when, honestly, he could have been chatting and someone could have brought it up. He's discussing, you know, chatting with this person. And then later he finds out from Kamala Harris that that person worked at the law firm. He could have just said, yeah, it's a big, huge mess. I hope I don't ever have to rule on it. And, you know, so then she says, have you had this conversation with the insinuation that there was some deep plot? I just can't see someone with the kind of intelligence and the legal background that just Judge Kavanaugh has having an intentional conversation with another l- legal person, a person who's an actual attorney who's, you know, sitting on a bar, like ha- has the ability to actually bring cases and stuff. Not some retired person or some old person who was a lawyer, but a current lawyer. I can see him just having a conversation with someone, I don't care what law firm they work for, about the case when he's under consideration for the Supreme Court nomination. Like, at what point does he, is he drunk? Is he, has he been roofied? What, what makes him have that conversation? It just is so implausible to me. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly can't uh, tell you, but uh, it seems like this, something like this might come before the D.C. Circuit. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to think, uh, you know, he, he did say that he had been having conversations with the judges around the courthouse and, hey, we're in America and it's impossible to avoid this topic. Um, but, you know, whether, you know, so if he was, whether or not he was thinking about something like that, but he, it sounded like, well, he had talked to some people about it before, which is kind of interesting in its own right. But to your point about Senator Harris, I think the line that really kind of set the tone that you're talking about is she said, be careful with your answer. And um, and that's the kind of thing you say to somebody if maybe, you you know, you need to be careful because I've got something on you. Um, or it's what you say when never... you're bluffing. <laughs> you <laughs> right. know, like I said with the really kids, to have anything or she hasn't released it yet. You so, bluff with um, the kids and you find out they didn't roll. They, they're never going to admit to rolling the car out in the driveway, but they've been drawing <laughs> on the walls behind that one cabinet. Yeah, it's you know, it works. Todd Ruger, thank you so much for your time today. Legal Affairs reporter for Roll Call. Have a great afternoon. We'll be right back. A dear sister in the Lord, who is a writer for the AFA Journal, wrote an astonishing article about idols. In this article, she attests to the fact that if we are truly honest with ourselves, we will find things or people whom are more important in our lives than our relationship with God. Let's just say when I read this, I did my own soul searching and found a few. There are several passages in God's word where he tells us to not idolize things or people. Even the very first two commandments warns us about idolatry. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John tells us to keep ourselves from idols. Idolatry is sin, and it could be your career, your marriage, your car, including yourself. John Piper says it best. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. 
How do you get satisfied and excited about God? Refresh your memory of what the Savior of the world did on the cross and ask the Lord to help you make Him number one in your life. With a heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Victory McIntosh. Connect with us more at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Equipped with Chris Brooks. This program is an apologetic endeavor. What I want to do is really train you in the art and science of defending and commending your Christian faith to people who maybe they've been hurt by the church, maybe they don't believe like you believe, and you're saying to yourself, how do I have an effective conversation with them? Well, we're looking for an evangelistic edge, if you will, that will allow us to more effectively, more contextualize the gospel so that we can reach men and women for Christ. Quite often, the on-ramp, if you will, is looking at culture and taking advantage of the conversations that folks are already having and saying, how can I leverage this to get people to talk about Jesus? This show becomes kind of massively significant to you if your desire is to reach people for Christ. Get equipped with Chris Brooks. Join me Monday through Friday at noon Central Time on Urban Family Talk. This is Poll Paris with Fox News Director of Polling, Dana Blanton. People are feeling pretty good about the economy these days, especially if you're on Team Red. Here's why I say that. Only Republicans give the economy positive ratings. Most say it's in excellent or good shape, 73%. Yet for Democrats, 30% feel positive. Independents, 33%. Overall, 47% in our Fox News poll say economic conditions are positive, up 23 points from two years ago. President Trump's best job ratings are on the economy. It's the only issue other than terrorism where he's ever been above 50% approval. He hit 53% in July. When voters who think the economy is going well are asked to name in their own words who or what is most responsible for the good economy, the top answer, President Trump and Republicans. That may not be enough to put a win in the red team's column this November. Voters prefer the Democratic candidate in their congressional district by 11 points. I'm Dana Blanton, and that's your poll Paris. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Fox News alert as Hurricane Florence takes aim at the East Coast. It was just upgraded to a Category 4 storm with a 130-mile-an-hour wind, and Florence could get even stronger before making landfall days from now. States of emergency already declared in North and South Carolina and in Virginia. The governor of South Carolina urging people to prepare for the worst. So uh, welcome back to the program, everybody. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right, also co-chair for National Center's Advisory Council, Project 21. Go to nationalcenter.org to find out more. Go to stacyontheright.com to subscribe. And also, uh, I want to ask you as radio host and also fellow American looking at uh, the preparations that our other American citizens are facing under Hurricane Florence's that where they're in the, the target area. To please remember them in your prayers. Um, you know, one thing that we find helpful at our house, and it came from a pastor at a church that we used to go to. He would say, remember me in your prayers over your meals. So when you sit down to bless your food, don't forget, pray for me too. And so that's how we would pray for him as our pastor. And sometimes when we're trying to remember to pray for something that's a pressing issue, it can, you're, you're like, yes, I'm going to pray about that. And then it, you know, few days go by, you're like, oh, I forgot to pray about it. So um, remember the the people who are kind of either battening down the hatches for the hurricane or 
are actually running from the hurricane, battening down the hatches and then leaving. Uh, remember them in your prayers uh, as you, you know, bless your food and, your, and over your meals. Um, so right now, I want to talk to you a little bit about our partnership with Eight Days of Hope. And so that happens October 13th through October 20th. But the reason we're talking about it now is because of Hurricane Florence. Last year, Hurricane Harvey brought devastation and heartache to thousands of families in Houston and Southeast Texas, and it was the worst flooding in the history of our country. So thousands of Eight Days of Hope volunteers responded. They were on the scene. They were helping the families to rebuild their homes, cleaning out the homes. Um, They rebuilt 50 new kitchens, hung sheetrock, removed debris, and so much more. And they're going to do the same thing again after this hurricane. That's what they do. So um, if you want to volunteer for the Houston, Houston, Texas rebuilding effort, which is still going on, you can visit 8daysofhope.com. And please remember to pray for those who are in the path of Hurricane Florence. It's expected to hit the Carolinas and Virginia. And the forecasts, uh, if you look online, they're saying an impenetrable wall of uh, just hurricane activity, rain, um, gale force winds. It's going to be pretty like it's going to be crazy. So we've got to be praying for the area. And um, really, if if you're so minded, eight days of hope, um, I'll give you the website one more time. Eight days of hope dot com. Eight days of hope dot of hope dot com. We also have the call lines open for you. If you'd like to call uh, comment on anything that we've discussed today here so far in the first hour, I think it's fascinating. Todd Ruger's comments about the the hearing timeline and what we can expect, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. One of the things that uh, is interesting about it is that the Democrats continue to make this an an abortion issue. Um, And I think there's so much about Justice Kavanaugh and his potential rulings that points to it's just it's just someone who's wanting to adhere to the Constitution as opposed to someone who wants to be a judicial activist and make law. And so it's also fascinating that such a big deal was made out of the fact that the Federalist Society had a contribution to make in helping to create the list of nominees that or you know, potential nominees that the president would consider. And that is not odd. All of the sitting Supreme Court justices have spoken at or been to, attended, Federalist Society events, because the Federalist Society has chapters all over the nation at law schools all over the country. And they also have, in addition to fundraising dinners, they have galas, they have panels, they have conferences. And the ones at Harvard and Yale and Stanford, you see our sitting Supreme Court justices from both sides of the political aisle attend those events, sometimes together. And they go and they speak, they sit on the panels and they talk. And they express nothing but love and admiration for the Federalist Society. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting that that's what's going on. Um, so let's go to the phones. We have Jacob in Alabama. Thank you so much for calling the show. Hello. Hello. Are you there? Yes. What's your comment, Jacob? Yes. How are you? Doing well. All right. Um, I think... I want to go spiritual on you right now, but it is that the Lord has given us an opportunity as uh, Christians and um, as also as, um, you know, Republicans, you know, conservatives to give a 
very close look at who the opponent is. They showed them. They showed themselves. There's no reason to even have any conversation about who they really are. And then also with uh, Barack Obama, you can always tell when a person is speaking to you and they have nothing but personal pronouns, it's the devil talking to them. And that was what Barack Obama was doing. So we have no excuse for being tricked. He's showing, he's showing exactly if you're spiritual, you know, you know that, you know, because it's all about Jesus. It's all about helping our neighbor. It's not about us. So when you hear people talking about it, you automatically know. There's no excuse. We have no excuse to vote any other way other than the way the Lord is directing us, you know, to glorify him. And we see the, we see the fruit. We're taking the fruit every day. Yeah, I I just encourage people to um it's it's not it's not a condemnation. It's not an issue of saying, you know, this this person is better than you. It's really an issue of it's it's a hard issue for us individually to consider what we're going to how we're going to account for our time when we meet our maker. We're all going to meet him. There's nobody who gets to skip it. It's not an either or, it's not optional you know, everyone's going to get to meet him. And so when we get there, you know, if we're already making up excuses for how we're going to try to justify how we voted, then that's an indication that we might not be voting correctly. And so without it being about the party, it has to be about what the word of God says. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. What does God's word say? What What does God's word say about whatever the issue is? So it doesn't matter whether it's this political party or that political party that presents the issue, what matters is that you take the issue itself, throw the parties aside, take the issue and say, okay, so here's what I know about this issue. And I know where my feelings are because I'm, I'm the same as any other human being. I have feelings about different issues and some things are much more volatile for me. They're, they're upsetting for me. I get really, really, you know, like emotionally it's triggering, if you will. <laughs> but that doesn't excuse. So if my feelings want to go this way, but the word of God says go that way, and these are two opposite this and that, that's two opposite directions, then I have to restrain my feelings to go in the direction of what God's word says. And so that is, it's easier to do if you have a biblical worldview, because you view everything in the light of eternity and what God wants you to do. And that relationship, you don't want to be convicted. You don't want to be walking around feeling like you're, you're separated from him because you've got something that you're not doing that, you know, he doesn't want you doing it, or he wants you doing it. And you're, you're in disobedience. And that can only come from reading God's word. And so it, when, when we look at all of the information that's out there about how Christians more and more are not having a Christian worldview, I don't really, I don't, I don't feel a sense of like anger or condemnation towards Christians who don't have a Christian worldview. It's that we live in this world and we live, we have these influences coming at us all the time. You've got what's on television, you have what's on billboards, you have what's coming into your ears and your earbuds when you're listening to the radio. And all of that plays a role. It kind of drags you away from the Christian worldview. And the answer to that, the antidote is always you got you to gotta find that church. You got to get in that pew every Sunday or every Saturday evening. You got to make it a priority to get there. If you're not sick or out of town, you got to be there. Then you have to say, I'm going to start really, I'm going to plug into my word because that's the source. That's the power source. 
plugging into it just means you're reading it every day. And then the third thing is you have to be praying. You have to say, you know what? I, I know what my mind wants me to do. I know what I'm interested in. But God, what are you interested in? What do you want me to think about? How can my mind be more like the mind of Christ? And so when you, when you, if you're really there, if you're willing to say that, oh, God will answer. He will come in. He will rush in. And he will not only help you change your mind so that your worldview is biblical, but you will enjoy it. You, it's, so people think worldview, Christian worldview, you know what they think? Ah, women can only wear skirts. The men, are, you know, they have a weird beard, not the cool beard like the millennials, but some kind of weird beard. And then, you know, they, they go around talking about scripture all the time. And, you know, you are supposed to talk about scripture in the morning and at night and when you rise up and when you go to bed. But that's a whole nother segment that people think if they have a Christian worldview, they're going to be weird. The fact is that God didn't make us to be weird. He called us out. We're a royal priesthood. We're clothed in white. We are made right with him through Christ Jesus. We are his children. He wants to have a relationship with us, help us to walk in abundance and to be a light so that when other people are like, "Mm, I'm just wondering what is going on with you? You can be like, Jesus, you want to know about it? Let me tell you. That is what he's looking for us to do. So the Christian worldview, it's it's gotten this kind of bad rap, but it's not because it's bad. It's just because people don't really understand what it looks like. It, what it looks like is you're wise and you can rightly divide the truth from lies. When someone is talking to you through the television or the radio and you hear them saying things that are unbiblical, or things that will lead you astray, you know it. You can hear it. Your ears aren't tickled. Your emotions don't rule what you do. And when you start moving in that direction, God will meet you right there. And then as you begin to line your mind and your actions up and get in that Christian worldview, you'll begin, it's, it just, it, it lifts a weight off of you because you're no longer fighting against what you know to be the truth and what's right. And then Others around you can see the same thing and some won't, you know, so just in case you're wondering, if you decide to adopt a Christian worldview and truly live for the son of God and be his bond servant, some people are going to have to go. They're going to get dusted off when you shake your feet off. That's going to happen. But God does not lie. You will have others who will be in your life who will fill that void And they will be walking alongside you and you'll be learning and living together. So there's there's no loneliness there. But I I pointed out because it really when you see the Barna Group information, the Barna Group studies, Barna.com and how they say that the Christian worldview, the number of Christians who have it, it's going it's decreasing. It spurs me on to say to to you, the listener, do you have a Christian worldview? And if you do not. Why not? Why not adopt that so that you can live and walk in abundance? Because if we're Sunday Christians or Sunday, Wednesday Christians or, hey, I got a problem, Lord, Christians, you know, come on. We all know these people living like the devil all week and, you know, 24 hours a day. But then when something happens, oh, I got to get to church. I got to pray. Well, yes, you do. You know, it's never it's never a bad time to pray. But how about living so that you can walk in victory? Because we are not supposed to be the ones with the biggest problems running around with everything going wrong. 
we're supposed to be lighting the path for others to get to, to where we are and get on that, that same direction so that they can live with Christ as well. It's not that we suffer through this life and, and to be with Christ is suffering, but it's not all suffering. There is joy in Christ, the ultimate joy of walking with him and knowing him. And we must, we must have that Christian worldview in order to be able to do that. The Christian worldview doesn't mean that you're, um, you're going around smacking people down with the word and memorizing scripture so you can tell everybody what's wrong with them. It means you're worrying about yourself. You, you're repenting for your own sins and you're lining up your actions on a daily basis. And it's a constant thing. You're lining it up. You're saying up. Okay. The further along you get, you'll realize, okay, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. And it's not that it's this horrible, murderous sin. You just, you know, that's not something God has for you any longer. And you're going to leave that alone, be it, you know, drinking wine or certain music or or what have you. And these are the small things, but they're the big things too. What you're watching on television, what you're listening to, uh, what you believe about certain core issues. Like if God took seven time spans, because when we call it day, We use the English version of day. We think 24 hours, but in the Hebrew day has four different individual meanings. And one of those meanings is a span of time, meaning it could be a thousand years. And we're living in the seventh day right now. And so if God took six individual time spans to create everything on the earth, and then at some point allowed Jesus Christ to come down and remember Jesus is God too. It's one God, three persons. He allows Jesus to come down and die on the cross and receive the sin debt for a hundred billion people, any person that has ever existed and any person that ever will exist. And he receives that. And it's such a great task for him as God living in all of the dimensions, living in all of the time space. He's outside of time. And he received that debt for you and for me. How can we not live for him and hold the Christian worldview as just a matter of course, that's what we have to do because we belong to him. Think about it. We'll be discussing it more. We're going to interview someone about it next week. So, all right, hour two is up next. Hold on.